Hello, everyone, and welcome to Midcast, an interview series featuring dissenting voices the establishment would rather silence. I'm your host, Manar Mohawish Adli. To help us continue these interview series, we invite you to become a member of our Patreon, which we will link in the video below. As an independent watchdog media outlet that exposes the corruption of the ruling class and the attacks on our civil liberties, we are facing major censorship and shadow banning by social media tech giants. And that's why we ask you to share our videos and help fund our projects as we stand up to the war machine. World leaders are now gathered in Glasgow for the COP26 climate conference where plans for the future of the world are being made. Activists from around the planet have descended upon the city, pressing governments to enact real change rather than offering simple bromites to the issue. Yet behind all the fanfare and away from the cameras and other other figures, excuse me, are attempting to hash out a new global economic system that intends to profit from ecological collapse, transforming financial rules and eroding national sovereignty. We're talking about the most powerful private financial interests in the world under the cover of COP26. They have planned, they've developed a plan to transform the global financial system by fusing with institutions like the World Bank and IMF using them to further erode national sovereignty in the developing world. Now, to add on to this, a project of the multilateral development banking system, the Rockefeller Foundation and the New York Stock Exchange recently created a new asset class that will put not just the natural world, but the processes underpinning all life up for sale under the guise of promoting sustainability. These are the same institutions and wealthy individuals who are tied to similar pushes for central bank uh, central bank uh, digital currencies and biometric digital IDs. Now, joining us to discuss this today is Whitney Webb. Whitney was formerly senior investigative reporter for Mint Press News and currently writes for The Last American Vagabond and Unlimited Hangout. Whitney has been monitoring this very closely and written two investigations on the subject. Whitney, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Menard. It's my pleasure. So while the cameras have focused on the big names gathering in Glasgow, uh, global financial corporations have basically been meeting in an attempt to remodel the global financial system under the guise of helping the environment. But as you write, these changes would erode national sovereignty around the world and lock poor countries into poverty for good. Can you put this in more uh, simple terms and explain to us what exactly is going on? Yeah, it's actually even worse than what you just laid out. So basically what's going on is that you're having not just private corporations and private financial institutions playing this out behind the scenes, but also uh, the world's billionaires, people like Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Larry Fink, Mike Bloomberg um, are all directly involved in these efforts um, as individuals and launching their own different um, initiatives, sort of um, uh, promoting their business interests and business interests of, of Wall Street specifically. Um, so in terms of the their efforts to remake and, and change the global financial system, this basically boils down to an alliance uh, that was actually launched in April with the plans to have it um, uh, have their first six-month progress report launched uh, at the same time as COP26. Um, 
It was originally launched by uh, John Kerry, uh, who's a U.S. special envoy for climate change, and also Janet Yellen, who's the Secretary of the Treasury um, under Biden, in coordination with the U.K. government, and Mark Carney, uh, who's a former the former head of the Central Bank of both England and Canada, um, and is the U- U.N. envoy currently for climate action and finance. That's his um current title, but he's also a special advisor to UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, for COP26. And this alliance is called the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. Um, And it's comprised of several different subgroups that are, um, they all have different acronyms and names, but they have Net Zero in in there, Uh, like the Net Zero Banking Alliance, uh, which represents 43% of um, all global banking assets um, in the world, definitely a formidable group. also, uh, you know, uh, a group of asset managers, which includes BlackRock and some of the biggest asset managers of the world and also asset owners, um, you know, definitely um, a significant uh, amount, if not the majority um, of the, the world's, uh, you know, private financial powers um, are operating uh, under the guises of this group, which has been publicly promoted um, at COP26, uh, specifically by politicians as uh, and you know, private sector leaders, I guess you could say, um, as as necessary um, to uh, as a planetary imperative. But if you look at how John Kerry, for example, framed this, he said basically what this alliance is it is the world's banks uniting behind the push to net zero, which first and foremost they see as a vast commercial opportunity, and then secondarily as a planetary imperative. Well, if something is a planetary imperative, you would assume it would be first, and the vast commercial opportunity would come second, but he doesn't phrase it that way. I think that's pretty telling. And if you go and read um, the progress report of this of this uh, alliance, um, it's quite clear that in, in there they describe you know what they've done over the past six months. But most of the focus is on their uh, what they call a program for work for transforming the financial system in the short term and their near term ambitions. Um, and it's quite clear reading that that this is. Um, really just using net net zero uh, decarbonization uh, and climate change rhetoric as cover for something very, very nefarious. Um, and there's a couple different elements to what they want to do. Um, so uh, one you mentioned in your intro has to do with the multilateral development um, <clears throat> banking system. Uh, the World Bank, uh, other groups like the Inter-American Development Bank, uh, you know, the, the, there's a lot of uh, MDBs, multilateral development banks that are regionally based. But basically, the focus of this group of the most powerful financial uh, interests in the world is specifically on emerging markets and developing countries, the global south. Um, and, and the more you look into it, the more obvious it becomes that this is really a neo-colonialist um, endeavor uh, in, in, in the context of what they want to do with multilateral development banks, uh, they they say what they want to push for is um, a fusion of these private sector interests represented by the alliance with multilateral development banks. Um, and this is obviously not a good idea. Um, we know, for example, that these banks have been acknowledged and leaked U.S. military documents as being unconventional financial weapons used as instruments of U.S. national power and imperial power. Um, And the fact that, you know, they want (laughs) to maintain the same dirty tactics, you could say, 
um, of these banks that, that the World Bank and the IMF and these other groups have been criticized for. Instead of having those be instruments of national power of U.S. imperialism, they want to make it instruments of power for Wall Street directly. You know, you could argue that Wall Street obviously uh, exercises a lot of uh, influence um, over U.S. national policy, and thus, you know, it being uh, the IMF or World Bank being instruments of U.S. national power does have a connection to Wall Street in that sense, and that's true. But what they're doing is they're cutting the government um, out of the middle and just making them uh, basically financial weapons um, for Wall Street private interests targeting developing countries. And they're very explicit about this um, in the report, saying that basically what they want these banks to do is to force governments to adopt business uh, enabling environments that enable investment, um, make them uh, more friendly to investment from alliance members, um, uh, their ambitions in the country specifically um, as part of this, uh, using this planetary imperative, this urgency um, around climate changes as, as the pretext. Um, whereas in the past, multilateral development banks have used debt um, uh, pre in predatory lending practices as a way to sort of get governments to implement policies they otherwise would not. They're using um, you know, this, uh, the, the planetary imperative of, of climate change and that justification is as the same, but it's being the strings are being pulled directly by the private sector um, with really little to no national government um, involvement. And that um, it becomes quite clear when you look at the other aspect of what this alliance is pushing for, which are the development of what they call country platforms, which doesn't really, you know, that's sort of like a very. Uh-oh, Amy, we, we lost you there for just a minute. Whitney, we have lost you. Can you still hear me? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, now you're okay. back. I lost you for like maybe 30. Okay. Well, you can probably just, uh, can you hear me now? Yep. 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 I can hear you. Yep. Go okay. Ahead. You can probably just cut it before I started talking about the country platform stuff. I, as long as I didn't. I'm going to finish what you were saying. Uh, yeah, I can start over again if you want. I was kind of rambling there for a while. You don't need to start over. Uh, well, we want you to finish with something. So um, talk about, you were talking about the global South and how these predatory loans are, are kind of changing in the way that the IMF and the World Bank are going to be basically occupying these <clears throat> through financial means. Yeah. Okay. So, so previously these banks used debt as a way to force uh, developing countries to implement policies they normally wouldn't implement, right, that were against their national interests in a lot of cases. Um, and instead of using debt, what they're they're looking to do here is the urgency of climate change, the urgency of adopting a net zero economy as a way to sort of force uh, these investments through. And some of these investments are not environmentally friendly at all. Um, and I can give some examples of that uh, later. But for example, this alliance right now, uh, while it was launched by John Kerry, Janet Yellen, and Mark Carney, it's currently led by Mark Carney and Mike Bloomberg, uh, for example. And looking at Bloomberg's own investments in uh, net zero technology, um, it's it's very clear um, that this is not going to be something that benefits the planet or the people of uh, in emerging markets and developing countries. It's it's definitely um, a neo-colonialist venture. Right. So you've basically described this new neo-colonialist uh, endeavor to, uh, you know, transform the financial uh, markets 
and the way that these uh, already what we would refer to as weapons of empire, the IMF and the World Bank. How exactly is this going to affect um, indigenous communities who are already affected uh, by climate crisis? Okay, so there's a lot of different ways this is going to impact uh, communities, so uh, indigenous communities. So one big example um, is that, you know, whereas in the past, uh, the, the past model of the IMF and the World Bank, uh, you would see debt used um, against uh, countries as a way to get them to privatize state-owned assets, for example, right, um, or implement unpopular austerity policies. Um what they're looking to do with this is to get developing countries to privatize their natural assets uh, because Wall Street is currently in the midst of a uh, have, having recently launched a new uh, investment vehicle called natural asset corporations with a specific focus on Latin America and in coordination with the multilateral development banking system that these same bankers um want to reimagine, uh, essentially what they want to be able to do is take ownership of the natural assets uh, of countries, specifically in Latin America, because that was the regional development bank they partnered with. Um, and this venture in Costa Rica is, is their pilot country uh, for this. But essentially what they want to do is create natural asset corporations that own the rights to ecosystem services produced by a, a quantity of land and then license access to the products uh, or, or to what's produced by those services to the public. Uh, and that is, uh, it, it's really insane um, when you when you uh, look at the nuts and bolts of it, because it basically opens the door for uh, foreign interests to basically become owners of things like the air or clean water and things like that um, in the developing world and then charge people living there for uh, their access to it. Um, and also presumably, um, you know, exporting those uh, assets um, abroad and things like this. And this is just an, a, a, um, a, a way to ex greatly extend uh, the existing Wall Street casino um, because, uh, you know, this is them creating a new asset class that, you know, in, in, in describing the opportunity, as they call it, of this asset class of creating natural assets that up until this point had been excluded from the financial system, they're able to uh, greatly increase the amount of assets available in the existing economy Estimates of, of the asset classes currently included in the economy are like 512 trillion. And they say by including natural assets and creating nature's economy, um, that they'll they'll be able to unlock four quadrillion in assets. Um, and this is just um uh has nothing to do with protecting uh the planet and everything to do with extending uh basically creating a, a, a global neo-feudal framework. Um in this in this new uh, financial system that they're hammering out um, at COP26, and it's being admitted in their documents, and it's getting um, really no coverage at all. Um, and what's very troubling is that you're having you know sort of faces of the climate change movement um, like Greta Thunberg. Right saying things like, oh, uh, the UN has to declare an emergency um, and all of this stuff, even though the UN is backing these same uh, policies that are Wall Street driven. Is that in your investigation, you actually break down how the UN um, has been transformed over the last 20 years to basically become a weapon uh, being used as a, or a tool, I should say, by these by this billionaire class, the very entities that you mentioned in the banking systems to promote these things. So when Greta Thunderbird comes out and says, we need to use the UN, what does that really, really mean? 
Okay, well, it's really problematic because what th th there's a big difference these days between what the public perception of the United Nations is and how the United Nations actually functions in practice. So, you know, this Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero that I just talked about, some of the most predatory banking interests in the world who have a directly announced predatory plans uh, for the developing countries, that is an industry-led UN-convened alliance, right? So they have the official backing um, of the United Nations. So if the United Nations, given the prevailing public perception, you know, that's supposed to be the UN works uh, with national governments and there's international consensus between national governments. And most of those national governments are democracies. Ergo, it's sort of like a way of developing democratic international consensus, right? That's the prevailing public perception of how the UN works. So if that's the case, why would they back uh, an alliance that really only benefits Wall Street and some of these billionaires involved like, like Mike Bloomberg? Um, but if you actually look at, at what's been going on at the UN uh, over the past several decades, um, it, it's, it's quite clear that this is, uh, you know, just business as usual at the UN these days. Um, in, in my piece, I quote um, from a speech given by the then head of the UN, uh, Secretary, then Secretary General Kofi Annan, uh, gave a speech to the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, you know, which is, um, you know, basically a meeting of the world's, you know, biggest uh, billionaires and business leaders and, and politicians and all this stuff all coming together. Um, and, and at this uh, particular meeting in 1998, um, I'll just read the quote because, I mean, it's uh, very telling that he says it this way. Um, he says, the United Nations has been transformed since we last met here in Davos. The organization has undergone a complete overhaul that I have described as a quiet revolution. A fundamental shift has occurred. The United Nations once dealt only with governments, and this, of course, is still the public perception. Uh, but he goes on to say, by now we know that peace and prosperity cannot be achieved without partnerships involving governments, international organizations, the business community, and civil society. The business of the United Nations involves the businesses of the world. Um, so that's his quote, essentially. And really what we've seen happen over time is that uh, the UN has become a, a huge vehicle for public-private partnerships, as they're called, which puts private capital, private corporations on equal footing with the national governments. Um, and also um, what's sometimes referred to as the stakeholder capitalist model, um, which essentially functions uh, in, in that same way through public-private sector uh, collabor collaborative uh, vehicles. But in practice, what happens is that it, it basically gives uh, corporations in the private sector uh, a greater role in policymaking, and they essentially use that to form the regulations and laws governing, <laughs> governing their own markets and, and greatly reduces the role that national governments actually play. And if you look at some UN documents that came out after this speech, by Kofi Annan in 1998, they basically say that the role of national governments at the UN today is to create enabling environments for these uh, often industry-led or industry-designed uh, policies. And we see that, of course, with this uh, Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. They say the role of governments is to create enabling environments. And if they won't do so on their own, we'll use the multilateral development banking system, the IMF and the World Bank, to force them to do so. Um, that's essentially what's going on here. And so with this kind of transfer of power out of the hands of government and into the hands of multinational corporations, very corrupt banking systems, and into the, the hands of like, you know, this billionaire 
trillionaire class, I guess we can call them now. Um, we are, if we haven't already, moved in the direct are moving in the direction of what could be described as like corporatism or fascism. Like, where do we see society heading in this direction in terms of civil liberties? Um, in a very, very bad direction, obviously. I mean, I think I think that should be pretty clear to everyone. What you're having are, are private sector interests um, attempting. Uh, at, at, through efforts like this uh, to redesign. Uh, in this case, you know, we're talking about the financial system, but these same forces are also looking to redesign other sectors of society um, yeah, as uh, under the guise of, you know, uh, different emergencies, different crises, uh, taking advantage of, of, of crises and public concern over those crises uh, to basically hammer through a, a, what is really the framework for a neo-feudalist uh, society. Um, and it's no coincidence that you have a lot of these same entities um, that are that are pushing for for uh, these these sorts of policies under the guise of climate change. They're also promoting things like what they call the fourth industrial uh, revolution, uh, an effort to automate jobs. Uh, there's also a lot of Silicon Valley involvement while they're launching the the so-called metaverse. And all of this stuff is going on um, at the same time. And really what a lot of these uh, initiatives boil down to is um, efforts by Western uh, capital and also capital uh, uh, capital, uh, capital from China, Russia, and, and other countries to create new markets and keep the, the casino going, essentially. Um, but, you know, obviously there's a lot more to it as well. Well, and, you know, under the guise of COVID-19 now, you know, they've this the establishment has created this sort of crisis to push for central uh, bank digital currencies um, and pushing for vaccine, you know, passports. Right. These, mm -hmm. these are the same people that are pushing uh, these ideas, which essentially uh, do expand surveillance and do um, crush more of our civil liberties. And so we're kind of moving in that direction already. So just to put it into kind of totally. relatable terms, how are we already seeing these things kind of being pushed now in terms of the COVID-19 crisis or pandemic, I should say? Okay, well, the the, the, the things that you um, brought up, like the, the digital ID stuff, um, the biometric digital ID is something that's existed. Uh, there's been a major policy push for this by a lot of the, these same groups uh, going back to 2014 um, and then coming into its own in a big way in 2016 with the launch of something called the ID 2020 Alliance, um, which was mainly, um, again, the Rockefeller Foundation who were behind really these natural asset corporations um, that I mentioned earlier in coordination with uh, Silicon Valley companies, um, mm -hmm. essentially. And they have a direct tie um, as founding members to the World Economic Forum's uh, Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Um, and what a lot of that has to do is about is also about remaking the economy. Um, and people may have heard that the post-oil economy, its data is the new oil, uh, right? And so a lot of um, what this has to do, basically what this has to do with is a centralization of who controls uh, your data in an increasingly digital world. Um, and under the guise of COVID-19, there's been a broad push to digitize essentially everything, but specifically the economy and, and, and essentially the foundation of the system uh, that they are already implementing and seek to um, expand even further is this biometric digital ID system um, that obviously has a huge surveillance component to it, as you, as you mentioned as well. Uh, but basically all of your online activities and everything you do in the digital space is tied directly 
um, to your digital ID um, that's based on biometrics, whether it's an uh, iris scan or a, a, a palm scan, a fingerprints, uh, facial recognition. Uh, there's different ways it's been implemented. Um, ID2020 uh, tends to use uh, iris scans um, in their pilot programs. They have uh, basically all of their pilot programs uh, that took place before COVID-19, they've done in uh, on in very vulnerable populations, specifically refugees, um, giving refugees in places like Syria and, and Myanmar or stateless people um, um, in those in those areas, the choice between surrendering their biometric data uh, for an experiment by what's a, you know Silicon Valley essentially, um, or getting food aid. You know, basically, do you want to eat or will you participate in our pilot program? Um, and it's very telling they tend to pilot these types of um, uh, uh, programs um, on increasingly vulnerable populations where people don't have a choice. Right, they're tested on vulnerable people first. People mm-hmm. in the global south, people who are homeless. Who are so desperate? Is that what I'm? What you're saying? Right. Yeah. And so, basically, what the goal of that system is, though, is to have a centralized players, a, a certain group of people with control over the data um, that is being generated um, at an ever increasing pace because of the increased digital uh, uh, digitizing um, of the economy. So, basically, you know. Um, if data is the new oil, the people that own the data and control the flow of the data and the access to that data are going to be sort of like the oil barons of this new uh, industrial revolution era, whereas, you know, the first uh, industrial revolution had to do with, you know, the, the advent of hydrocarbons and people like the Rockefeller family, for example, became uh, America, uh, America's first billionaires and all of this stuff because of their control of oil assets during that period. Similarly, there are interests that want to have that same position for themselves in this new increasingly uh, digital uh, era that's that, that they refer to as the fourth industrial revolution. Um, uh, but it has a lot of very uh, <laughs> insanely bad, <laughs> for lack of a better term, uh, implications for civil liberties. And central bank digital currencies are the financial side to that because the, the idea is to have those also tied to this foundational uh, digital ID infrastructure, uh, but with the idea of allowing central banks to impose uh, requirements or restrictions or monitoring of people's financial activity. And ways, uh, you you mentioned earlier, ways we're already seeing this. Um, In the UK, uh, France, I believe, Australia, and I think uh, they've talked about it in the US as well, there is, for example, a push to uh, link uh, link your ID, your government-issued ID, to your internet activity or or to your social media accounts. Uh, This is being pushed in the UK, I know, right now, specifically through something they're calling David's Law. where they basically want to have, uh, if you want to access social media, you just sign up uh, with a government issued um, ID, the same exact ID program that was previously promoted by Tony Blair and was very controversial because of its surveillance uh, application and applications. Um, or potential uses or uh, abuses, um, they they basically want to use that same system and connect it to uh, social media accounts. But then, you know, once they do that, they can connect it to a lot of other things, um, uh, including your act. Uh, there's actually uh, the UK government, the Israeli government, and the US government are part of something called the Partnership Against Cybercrime, uh, which actually seeks to have those identities not just tied to your social media accounts, but literally everything you do online and also your financial activity on 
online. Uh, so it's basically uh, designed, uh, if it's allowed to progress, uh, to eliminate any sort of ability to have privacy um, in your online or financial life. And that's really the, the types of uh, systems and plans that are being implemented um, in mass globally under the guise of uh, you know, combating COVID-19 or combating climate change. Um, we're seeing more often than not, the solutions tend to be um, along uh, this route. Um, but it, it, it is quite obvious in the case of climate change to see that a lot of these solutions have very little to do with sustainability. Um, in the case of, I'm um, um, oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, I can I can come back to it if you give me a second. Sorry. Oh, okay. And and when we when people uh, are being pushed into this new biometric digital ID system that connects their financials, uh, their internet activity, if they don't participate or if there's like a technical glitch or something, that can remove their access, that person's access to things like their own money and their yeah. ability to buy food, for example. Is that is that what I'm understanding? Yeah, and this has happened in, in places like India. They have a, um, a system there that's sort of like this, this digital biometric ID system. I think they call it Andahar or Andhar, uh, something like that. And 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 people have been, uh, because of glitches in the system, have been not de been denied access to um, essential food and have actually starved to death um, as a result. And unfortunately, the interest behind these frame this as, oh, it's going to make... Um, things more equitable. It's going to give developing countries more opportunities, but we're really seeing uh, it, it, it act in, in very much the opposite way. And so it's increasingly important for people to be vigilant about what the sales pitches are of these systems and what they actually, how they actually function and practice. And more often than not, a lot of these systems are promoted by the same uh, group of billionaires, a lot of them tied to Silicon Valley, like Jeff Bezos, um, Bill Gates, um, and, and some of these other individuals uh, that they're increasingly backing and promoting these systems. Uh, there, there's a huge difference between how they promote these systems and how they actually affect the people in the places where they are implemented. And um, we're seeing huge pushback, though, against these biometric digital IDs, vaccine passports, especially when it comes to children. We're seeing pushback all around the world. We barely see any coverage when it comes to mainstream corporate media. I mean, if it weren't for like viral videos that, you know, that go viral on social media, we probably wouldn't even hear about them. But do you think that there will be enough pushback to roll back these kinds of initiatives? Like what, what are you seeing right now? Um, well, you know, where I live in, in Chile, uh, there's a vaccine passport system on not a lot of pushback at all. But I think that has to do a lot of that has to do with the media landscape here. It's completely dominated by mainstream media. There really is no independent media functioning here. Mm -hmm. Um, that is critical of these systems. Um, so I think a lot of it, um, that's why you see a lot of these protests take more off, uh, take place more often than not in, in English speaking countries because of the uh, diversity of uh, the media landscape, at least for now. I mean, obviously, censorship um, is, is making it a lot um, harder these days. But I think ultimately um, the way to challenge uh, the inherent problems of these systems is to really separate it from the debate of um, the vaccines themselves. Um, that it's really irrelevant um, at this point uh, what you think about the COVID-19 vaccines, their efficacy and their safety and whatnot, um, because uh, regardless of what you think about that, 
um, the vaccine passport system is something that is being ushered in as currently a vaccine passport system, but it's planned to be something uh, much more extensive than that. You know, it goes from COVID-19 vaccines to all vaccines to your entire electronic health records in a matter of steps. And we're really not that far away uh, from that taking place. And then you're having it linked to that, but also your social media access, your online uh, activities, your uh, purchasing on your purchases online, your accessing of e-government services. Um, uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it, the list goes on and on and on. Um, and really having this being uh, this is just a, a, a dream come true for surveillance interests. It was actually planned out. Um, some of the infrastructure of this uh, was planned out as part of as a post uh, 9-11 war on terror uh, surveillance system planned uh, for use domestically in the U.S. by the Pentagon's DARPA uh, called Total Information Awareness, um, which uh, was so controversial at the time because it would eliminate privacy um, and civil liberties. It was said by critics at the time that it was scrapped by Congress a few months after it launched. Uh, but really, these these same these these digital IDs, if they're you know allowed to um, expand and grow, um, will become very much the same in terms of its utility in, 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 regarding surveillance to the national security state. Um, and it's very alarming to see. Um, a lot of people on the left supporting that policy, um, you know, because it's really it's really something that even top um, uh, top officials, in, you know, uh, chief medical officer, the chief medical officers of Wales, uh, the health minister of Israel. Um, these guys have been have been either caught on hot mics or, or publicly said, you know, the uh, epidemiological justification for vaccine passport passports is really minimal. What it's meant to do is to incentivize vaccination really at this point uh it, it the people that aren't going to take the vaccine aren't going to take it um you know so in terms of its utility in that sense it's really i would argue come to an end um so what really <laughs> why are they keeping it going isn't this supposed to be a temporary measure it's obviously becoming permanent in in several countries or moving towards that way um in the case of chile where i live they have uh, just in the past couple months been moving the goalposts on what you have to do in order to keep your uh, vaccine passport uh, valid if they just determine that you violate uh, a series of policies they're able to change at their whim they can deactivate yours even if you're fully vaccinated that doesn't really sound like a system that's uh, focused necessarily on health it seems like a system that's focused with uh, behavioral modification and control of a domestic population and when it comes to the left, I mean, I've never seen so many people on the left cheer on Big Pharma. You know, whether you support a vaccine or not, that is yeah. irrelevant. It's irrelevant. People should still have the choice, especially when it comes to looking at the actual numbers of how COVID is affecting young people, children. I mean, these are the people that probably don't have to take a vaccine, but they're supporting vaccine mandates, vaccine passports. Um, which all in turn, as you just described in this entire conversation, really benefits uh, digitizing our information. It benefits big pharma profits. It benefits the 1% billionaire class moving um, our financial systems in a new direction of even more and further exploitation. Um, Whitney, thank you so much for joining us today. I don't know if I feel like less hopeful after this conversation or like what, <laughs> but that really was, um, that really hit me hard, everything that you talked about. So I really appreciate you joining me today. Um, and we're going to, we're going to talk more about this in another interview, hopefully in the coming weeks, but 
uh, thank you for covering this and thank you for always uh, being so outspoken about these issues. No, absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity to, to bring these uh, issues to the attention of your audience. Thank you so much.